Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Brett Bartholomew. Brett is a performance coach, author, consultant, and founder of the performance coaching and consulting company, The Bridge Human Performance. His experience includes working with elite athletes of every dimension, both in the team environment and private sector, along with members of the United States Special Forces and members of Fortune 500 companies. His book, Conscious Coaching, The Art and Science of Building Buy-In, was ranked in the Amazon Top 100 Books Overall in 2017, has become a must-have resource guide to coaches of any kind who seek to better understand their athletes and what makes them tick. The reason I've asked Brett on Leave Your Mark is that even at a relatively young age, he's already left a huge mark on the industry he loves, and he is dedicated to changing the way coaches coach and the way we help athletes perform to their greatest potential. Welcome, Brett. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's great to spend some time with you. Uh, we've bumped into each other over the years, but never really spent any time chatting. So I'm looking forward to this, actually, to get to know you. I just uh, finished reading your book, so lots of uh, interesting information coming out of it. So you grew up in Nebraska. Is that one of these? I've never been in Nebraska, but is one of these places where you can see your dog run away for miles? Or is it, uh, was there much uh, terrain to, to, to your growing up? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it depends on the part of the state that you're in. You know, I grew up in Omaha, which is about a million people. It's a larger metropolitan area. Um, I'm sure there. And then when you get into western Nebraska, you know, you're getting into more badlands, Colorado type, you know, terrain, a little bit more mountainous. The, the middle part for sure is more rural. Um, but no, not 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 what you would imagine. Typically, when people think of Nebraska, I think what they're really envisioning is Kansas. Uh, you know, Kansas, Kansas is very much how you described it. Um, you know, Nebraska is a good mix. Not all flyover states are as people imagine them. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see a farm next to me or anything like that. Okay, cool. Um, I'm really interested to get this started and it's gonna, I think we're going to circuitously work our way around here because after reading your book, I have lots of interesting questions for you. And I don't, you know, I know you've probably done many podcasts and spent a lot of time on technical and this podcast is really about the human side of things and uh, characteristically what you do in your book is really explore the human side of things. But I'm interested um, in your trajectory as a professional, you know, you're in a place where I was really, you know, I was kind of impressed, but at the same time struck by when I saw your birth date and I said, you know, the guy's still really young, but he's done some really amazing things. And what do you attribute your vertical trajectory to? Like you, you've obviously had a lot of really significant experiences 
you you're very thought thoughtful and thought provoking and at 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 this point in your career, that doesn't usually come easily to everybody. I'm just wondering where that comes from in you. Yeah, succinctly. Well, one, thank you. Um, succinctly, I would put almost losing my life at 15 played a huge role in that, you know, and uh, something I talk about quite a bit in the book, as you know, but being hospitalized for nearly a year of my life, almost losing my life, losing some family relatively young in life, um, you know, that, that kind of keeps things like death top of mind, not to sound morbid, but more from the standpoint that you're not here long. So you better understand what it's, what you want out of life and you better learn to experience things fully. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that experiencing things fully and knowing how to be in the moment and kind of live with that kind of focus and tenacity is what makes experiences more vivid. And then when you uh, can make those experiences more vivid, you extract more from them, you reflect upon them. Um, I also just don't have time to waste on, you know, trivial things that I think uh, we can all easily get caught up in with minutia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I tried to expose myself. I had an obsession with trying to expose myself as a fraud as early as possible as a coach. Um, you know, I would try to put myself in situations, which this is going to sound really bizarre, but I'd put myself in situations where I'd have very little time to prepare for a session, or maybe I wouldn't do, you know, I, never to the point where my athletes would be subjected to unethical practices. But I mean, I'd I'd try to find some way to create barriers so that I could see if I could overcome them because I wanted to just see if, if this is, I had what it took. Um, And I probably did the same thing in school. I was a guy that, you know, know, everybody else would study four weeks in advance for a test, but you know, I challenged myself to go to class every day, listen. And if I did that, I'd feel like, all right, as long as I'm reviewing, you know, a week before I should be able to recall this stuff if I'm taking good notes and same thing with strength and conditioning. You know, we, we try to make this so much more complicated than, than it needs to be. You know, if you take your time studying the sport, the science and the individual, and you reflect on your actions each time you coach, you know, you should be extracting a great deal out of that. So I think just a purposeful practice based upon the mission and the realization that, you're not here long. Um, you better get good at something and you better leave an impact in the world. Uh, otherwise who's going to tell your story? What do, what do you think? Um, you know, we'll probably spend a little bit of time on that story. Um, you know, pieces of that story as you feel comfortable talking about them, but, um, what do you feel sort of connects you to the, the human spirit side of, of what you do professionally? Because again, that's kind of unusual. Um, you know, you speak a lot about the nuts and bolts and the technical and all those things in your book and, and people's kind of connection with that, et cetera, in the industry. But you obviously have a real feeling or tangible um, connection to the human experience. Why? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, what I experienced in, in the hospital, I'm around a bunch of professionals at that time in my life that are supposedly some of the best in the world, doctors, nurses, psychologists, dietitians. Um, but what I found is really they were more socially skewed than they were socially skilled. You know, every patient was in there for the same reason, you know, like if they didn't kind of fit their model, it was because the patient wasn't adherent or the patient was being, you know, dismissive and, and not following treatment. It was very cold and academic in the way they, they treated the relational side of things. And, and that affected people's lives. You saw people that were in that setting that really didn't make a lot of progress as, as individuals because, you know, they were kind of forced into this bucket, so to speak. And, 
you know, I remember walking out of the hospital at 16 years old and, you know, a 50 year old nurse looking at me instead of saying good luck and the rest of your life told me you'll be back. I'm sure of it. And, you know, like that, that's somebody that apparently is, is supposedly in a job that's, that's meant to help people. You know, this was a nurse that was dealing with people in life threatening situations. And, um, I remember telling her, I said, you know, you're right. I will be back to speak to all the people that, you know, you're too arrogant to help. And, um, you know, so I think those things, my parents got divorced at a young age. So I think that gives you a certain level of attunement to when there's stress, uh, in an, in kind of an environment, you know, as a young kid, you're thinking like, did I do something to upset them? Like, what could I do to make it better? You know, all these kinds of, and my parents are both great. We have close relationships and they're great friends to this day. So even though, you know, divorce can be ugly, it's certainly not, you know, I didn't grow up in any kind of like abusive household or anything like that, but when you're like eight to 10 years old, you know, you're just trying to find a way to make people quit fighting, you know, in college that transferred and, and me and a former guest of yours, Stu McMillan, both have a really deep love of music in college that, that translated into me being always the guy that would pick music for parties. I'd always know when to change the song. You could always sense when people's energy was different. And, you know, so, but the biggest piece was just seeing those socially skewed practitioners that were in self-proclaimed positions to, to make a difference in people's lives, but I don't think followed through with that. And so social dynamics were near and dear to my heart through my graduate studies and, and really from, from that point of my life on. Mm. Well, that's interesting that you talk about uh, your connection to music. And I come from a divorced family as well. And a couple of things lit up in my, my mind when I heard you say that, you know, stopping them from fighting. I think I spent three years of my life listening to my parents yell at each other constantly. For, and, and finally, the, I remember the day when my father walked in and told me he was leaving and there was almost a sense of relief in me because... You know, I didn't have to listen to that anymore. And, and to your point, I was the same. I loved music. I, I said to Stu in, uh, in his session, I wanted to be a radio DJ, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. So uh, it was kind of a, a sort of a connection to that. But um, I'm going to actually read your I, – I do a thing in my um, podcast where I connected with uh, my purpose through a book that was basically a, an astrology meets numerology book. And I wasn't necessarily a big astrology nut, but this book really connected with me, and I had a saying in my wall that – essentially was in this book and really connected me with my purpose. So I do this with everybody and you are a Pisces one. So your purpose is to achieve the confidence and discipline necessary to be fully independent and turn your excess charm into external rewards. Hmm. Undertaking of a new action brings new strength is the saying that goes with yours. Pisces ones have the ability to be physically, mentally, and spiritually strong, but if they hide from life, they may suffer from physical ailments, confusion, and chaos. They need a purpose and lots of discipline. Competitive, they can drive themselves relentlessly to be the best, along the way acquiring luxuries that suit their exquisite taste. If Net Neptune is strong, they may suffer from a series of annoying illnesses, feel as if they are victims of circumstances, and shun possessions and beautiful things because they prefer the spiritual path. Masters of creating the world according to their vision, they need self-confidence. They must learn to be spontaneous and adaptable. I like that. That's interesting. And where are you? Where, what's your source there? The book is a book written by a woman named Linda Joyce, who's an astrologist by, uh, by profession. Uh, back, uh, I, I discovered it. How I discovered it, I tell the story a couple times in my podcast, but for you, so you sort of see the connection was, I used to have a saying, some men see things as they are and say why I dream things that never were. 
and say why not on my computer from through the 90s. And I ran into this book in a bookstore one time and I picked it up and, it, and each um, astrological, numerological connection has a purpose statement and then has a saying attached to it. So my purpose statement was like, I read it and I went, whoa. And then the saying after it was some men see things as they are and say, what I dream things that never were. And I was like blown away. So now I, I read it for everybody. I love that. I appreciate that very much. Yeah. But it's always, it's always interesting to kind of take those things and see how they apply not only today in the moment to moment in past circumstances and situations and kind of explore that further. So, yeah, well, it was interesting. The line that said, whether it's absolute connection or not, but I thought it was kind of after reading the book again, um, I was actually listening to the chapter on, on your health uh, thing again today for the podcast and Pisces ones have the ability to be physically, mentally, and spiritually strong. But if they hide from life, they may suffer physical ailments, confusion, and chaos. And I wonder, <clears throat> to some degree, when you reflect back on that period of your life, were you, I wouldn't say were you hiding, but were you you struggling with, with where you were in the world or who you were in the world at that point and sort of trying to find yourself? I mean, I think, uh, I mean, a, a big reason why I went down that kind of obsessive path was my core friends at the time, people that I grew up competing in sports with and or against you know, turn to drugs, you know, and not, not usual teenage stuff, like, you know, alcohol and maybe somebody smoking weed in their parents' basement, like kids I grew up with and, you know, suburban neighborhoods were doing cocaine and meth. And so I, you know, I feel like it was actually the opposite. I feel like I knew what I was about. I, I felt like I was alone, uh, in terms of like high school really wasn't Yeah. I, I always just had this anxiety as a young age that I wanted to get out and do something and like find what I was great at and, and give something to the world. Like I was very serious as a teenager, you know, and as a sports competitor and, and everything. And so when I saw friends turn into like cocaine and meth, I like, I doubled down on my training and I doubled down on myself and I, I trained obsessively, you know, not knowing anything as a teenager about training, you know, going, I'd go to 24 hour fitness at 1230 in the morning just to see how dedicated I was. And because I knew, my friends at that time or former friends were out drinking and doing cocaine, you know? And so it was a way to kind of prove how much more determined I was than them, which is silly, you know, that's a silly thing to, but like, that's what I thought, you know, I was competing with myself and them and this idea. And I became fascinated with how hard you could push yourself. And I just had a lot of energy at the time. I didn't know what to do with. Mm -hmm. um, once I found strength and conditioning and coaching, that energy was directed um, but I, I still felt that in college. I mean, I'd be a junior in, in college and I'd look at one of my friends and or I'd even talk to my mother and I'd be like, I feel like a failure. And she's like, what are you talking about? I go, I just feel like I should be doing something. Like, I feel like, you know, I'm going to, and she's like, you are, you're going to class. You're, you're doing college. You're doing what people do. And I was like, yeah, but like, if I died tomorrow, like what would I contribute? You know, and that's kind of serious thinking, like, as you know, at that part of your life. And, and if your listeners are hearing that, they're probably like, dude, I would definitely not have liked to hang out with that guy. Um, <laughs> you know, but I could turn it off. Like I, you know, I went out with my friends and, and did, once I got to college and found a group, you know, that was a little bit more like uh, of a true mesh of personalities and, and out of that, but, and more balanced, you know, I'd, I'd go out and I'd have fun. It wasn't like I was staying home, you know, but in high school for sure. Like, I was just ready to get on to the next phase of my life. So not, not running away from anything, probably trying to run towards it. Um, and I liken it to a mirage. I knew there was something there. Maybe it was the book. 
maybe it's the online course I've done. Maybe it is something I have yet to do, um, but I couldn't make out the image. So I thought if I just run farther and I run harder and I do this, maybe that image will become more clear. And it did the opposite at the time. I blacked out and was hospitalized. Mm -hmm. Um, I think coming back from that, that image is a lot more clear. And now I, I have a, a very clear idea of what I believe that is to be. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I'd put that. For, for the listeners who haven't necessarily read your book, there's a, obviously a chapter where you talk about where you got uh, very sick because you basically ran yourself into the ground from an exercise standpoint and went in and got sort of a therapeutic intervention. And you talk about um, sort of two women who, who um, worked with you, one who you found Rita, who you describe in the book as being somebody who just was callous and, you know, just kept providing interventions, but really with no, with no human connection. And then you talk about this gal, Katie, that you really connected with. I'm wondering, you know, um, Kate, was Katie in some sense uh, an ignition switch for you? So in terms of who you've become as a professional, in terms of that human side of what you do, when you look at that person and their intervention, was that kind of a, an ignition point for you? She was an ignition point more from the fact that when I was hospitalized, I was a minor and so, you know, I couldn't get out of that hospital unless the medical staff, you know, agreed that, you know, I had either met their standards or quality, you know, like uh, based on my, I, they were using BMI and, and vitals and a number of other things. Um, she was an ignition switch from the standpoint that she finally got my parents to listen that this wasn't the place for me. I wasn't really responding well to treatment, you know, and I think they thought that because I'd tell them daily, like, hey, you know, this was an eating disorder hospital. I had lost a significant amount of weight because I was training three times a day obsessively and then eating low carb and low fat. Cause that's what all the bodybuilding magazines would tell you to do. You know, like I, I'm a teenager. I'm not going to, you know, academic review websites and learning how to, you know, I didn't know how to train at the time. And, you know, my family wasn't well off enough that we had a full-time strength coach or discipline, you know, nutritionists, there weren't these mega facilities like there are now where people can go almost train as pro athletes at 10 years old. Um, you know, my strength coach at my high school was my industrial tech teacher who handed us a, you know, a sheet and then went and read the USA Today. Um, so, you know, I'm in this hospital and I'd tell them like, listen, I don't have an issue with food. And they'd say, well, clearly you do. You've lost all this weight, yada, yada, yada. And at the time I was struggling with depression more than anything, you know, trying to deal with a loss of a social circle, trying to figure out, you know, my place, like, you know, trying to figure out an outlet. But anytime I'd say that it's you're in denial, you're in denial. And I'd get a little check mark. It would mean I'd have to stay admitted longer. You know, they basically just wanted me to say, I'm scared of a piece of pizza, you know, and then apparently there'd be some breakthrough, which we know that whether your addiction is drugs, alcohol or anything that. It's never that thing. It's a bigger picture item. So Katie was an ignition switch in that I think she finally helped my parents realize that that wasn't the place for me, something that I had been trying to get them to, to learn for some time. You know, she was able to paint a more vivid picture. I mean, I had seen probably eight therapists prior to Katie as a teenager, and all of their answers were some form of antidepressants, anti-anxiety, just drugs, you know, to kind of like dull this. You know, and I can't imagine if I existed today and was trying to take that same approach. I mean, you're not clearly thinking, you know, when you're under the influence. And now for some people, their brain chemistry is such that they're going to need a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. That's not a weakness, right? Like if you have a true chemical imbalance, some of those things may provide 
for lack of a better term, the nutrients or the alchemy that you need. But for me, like I was going through, you know, some normal teenage stuff. So drugging me up and telling me I'm abnormal wasn't really the the solution that I was. And then I'd get mad because these people would essentially tell me I was, you know, halfway short of nuts. And then they'd be like, oh, this is the eating disorder talking. This isn't the real Brett. And I'd be like, I'm not the exorcist guy. You know what I mean? Like I saw my best friend overdosed on cocaine at a party last week. You're telling me that wouldn't create some kind of tension, you know, or trauma. So when Katie really helped them understand, like, listen, this probably isn't the place for your son. You know, that was, I think what my parents needed to hear. They needed to hear a subject matter expert, give them permission Mm -hmm. to say, trust him, let him do it on his own. And then that's when I really dove into the research of strength and conditioning, nutrition, and within three months kind of got my health back to where it needed to be. So yeah, in some facets, she was definitely an ignition switch. It's a, it's a beautiful story. I mean, what I, one of the things that I took away from it was this, because as you read through your book and obviously what you're dedicated to is this concept of really understanding the person in front of you and recognizing that if you're going to coach them, you have to understand what makes them tick and you have to understand how they're motivated, what they're struggling with and what they're not struggling with so that you can create that trust and you can have a better working relationship. And to some degree in, in that story, you, you, expo- you exposed where the same mistake that I think some coaches make, which is to treat the athlete or the person in front of them as a, as a commodity that they're trying to put through a program versus treating them like a human being and understanding what, what's going to motivate them to have success. So that yeah. I found very interesting from a connection. What do you what do you see as your purpose? I mean, you seem like somebody who's really sort of looked within yourself. What do you what do you feel your purpose is? I, I think at this point, within the profession or in life? Oh, in life. Yeah, I mean, I think, and there, there's an intermingling there too. I think my purpose is to help people overcome themselves, you know, and learn that they can do that in a variety of ways, whether that's through training, whether that's through self-awareness, whether that's through brutal transparency. Um, I think I have a gift to help people overcome themselves. And that gift is only because I've been to very dark places myself. And Carl Jung used to talk about that. The only way to help somebody overcome their darkness is to be very much in touch with your own. And if you don't understand kind of the upside to your dark side, then like, you know, I don't know that you're going to accomplish much in life, you know, but we're in a society now that really craves comfort above all else. And I tend to think that talent needs trauma in some way, shape or form. I don't, I don't, I don't think people can truly know themselves or what they're capable of until they've been. And and every trauma is different, right? Like it's not a comparison, right? There I've worked with special forces operators that have lost limbs. I've worked with, you know, I've had family members die of cancer. Um, You know, I have a family member right now in, in my extended family going through cancer treatment, like, so, you know, it's not a competition of who's got the greatest trauma. It's whatever that is to you. It's whatever that trauma is to you and, and relative to the way in which you deal with that. For some athlete, that might be an ACL reconstruction, which could be viewed medically as a minor trauma today. You see a lot of people come back from that. But that's still somebody's first injury is still a very much traumatic experience, you know. And so I think that now there's a growing number of, of coach educators, academics and practitioners who are really trying to engage with the sociology of coaching and, and, and understand what that means. And I think that that's impossible to do without helping people understand themselves. And that's what I'm trying to do. You come from a, 
a generation of strength and conditioning coaches. I've been talking to a lot of the older cats like myself. I mean, I'm almost 55 and talking to Mike Boyle the other day, he's 59. And we have sort of a common thread of coming out of, into the industry when there really wasn't anything and you were just kind of really crafting it. And you, you came in at a period of time where there obviously were jobs in it and, and then become sort of a professional world. Uh, but you talk in the book about this sort of, um, I forget how to describe it, but sort of everybody sort of cutting everybody else's legs out from underneath them. And Schadenfreude. Stuff. Pardon me? Uh, Schadenfreude, kind of this idea of envy and ego and how it's yeah. anabolic. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. What was that experience like? And um, and what do you think we've got to do to change that in some sense? Yeah, I mean, I think, and this is a whole, you know, to steal one out of Mike Boyle's playbook, because I feel like he always says this on his podcast, you know, I wrote an article about this called cannibalizing our own and excuse me, it's, it's all about this. It's this idea that, and, and some of it has science-based underpinnings. Listen, you know, when there's scarce resources as there is in strength and conditioning, there's very few, you know, jobs at, at certain elite levels or perceived elite levels and there's tremendous oversaturation or competition. You're going to have this, you're going to have people that, you know, they're constantly trying to prove someone else is a charlatan or a Montebank, you know, in order to elevate themselves. Um, they're constantly going to be a contrarian because it's, it's all this fighting over scarce resources, which, listen, that's, that's why man grouped together in tribes early on, right? Like competition was resource, for resources was so fierce, they realized they better work together and, and do these things. But we haven't really quite grasped the collaboration part in strength and conditioning, you know, and, and maybe that's because many of us were, were, I don't know, average, slightly above average athletes ourselves, always looking for an edge and, and very competitive. And, and we channel that into our work life, maybe needlessly. Um, but one thing's for sure, the old way doesn't work anymore. You know, people are now told, Hey, do an internship or get your degree, do an internship, you know, and all will be well. And that's not the reality, you know, the coaching equivalent and I'm actually doing a whole project on this. The coaching equivalent of climate change is happening um, from the standpoint that, you know, you, ha you have to go about managing your career in a vastly different way. And I've learned this crudely, um, but, but effectively, you know, these days, it's not enough to, to do an internship. It's not enough to, to do X, Y, and Z. And, and we've got to do that. But it does get harder because we're also in, because of those scarce resources, we're in positions where if you do well or somebody else perceives you doing well, there's this feast and famine gap here where you better get ready for criticism. And I remember it well. I mean, I was a part of it when I was in graduate school, you know, I was in charge of uh, six to eight uh, different, well, eight teams in totality during my time there, either as a head or an assistant. And, uh, we'd sit there and we'd be like, Oh, if somebody's on social media, you know, they're not doing their job. You know, there's just constant casting of aspersions on people that were more visible. Um, you know, five years later, I remember a pro athlete that I'm working with is like, why aren't you on social media? I said, well, you know, that's, that's all nonsense. If you're on social media, you know, and he's like, really? He goes, I see you talking to interns all the time, educating them. You educate us. You don't think there's anybody out there that that could possibly help. Then I'm like, you know, I, I, it made me think. And I said, well, you know what, if I ever did on get on social media, I'd kind of show people the fundamentals, not fluff aspect. I'd show them the, the quotidian 
basics done day after day instead of sexying up and, and making these things fancy and whatever. I'd show them what's really done day after day. And I did that and it started taking off. But then ironically enough, as I started to gain traction and in supporters, then people are like, oh, you sold out. You used to be one of us. You know, now because I have a book and an online course, I've somehow sold out. And I look at that as, well, no, I just don't think that coaching eight groups a day, six groups a day, whatever on the floor anymore at this point in my career is how I'm going to make a big difference in SNC. You know, I think that's valuable. You have to do that, you know, throughout your career to gain the skill set, the perspective and the knowledge necessary to speak on these things. One feeds the other. But at this point, you get you also get to a point. I'm sure Mike would agree. And I know Stu would agree because we've talked about it, where if you want to make a bigger impact and now you've got to kind of transition. I think, and you mentioned it early and not to belabor this, but like where, where I face a lot of critical feedback is, well, you're only 32, you know, as if age and like, you know, I look at Lin-Manuel Miranda who wrote Hamilton, the Broadway show, I believe he penned it in his late twenties. Does that, should people not do things until a certain age, you know, like, is there, is this like drinking or joining the military where you're not allowed to have a voice? I mean, the way I look at it is we all have very different experiences. There's coaches out there that I'm sure you would agree and, and possibly know in their forties or beyond that have very limited perspective because they've stayed in one lane their whole life. They're not lifelong learners. They don't have a dedication to growing or, or, or those things the way some others do, you know, like I'm not, I'm not going to feel ashamed that at a young age, I took nearly every opportunity that was afforded to me to learn. I put myself in, in unpopular situations and I really did a lot of reflection and deliberate practice to make sure that I could break down the whys, what's, wins, and how's of what I was doing. Um, but because I'm 32, and I talked to Mike about this, I said, you know, what would you say to people that criticize you or me because of this and that? You know, it's, it's good advice. But, yeah, hopefully our field gets to a point where people realize there's no secret sauce. I mean, we're, that's not the nature of coaching. Um, hopefully people get to a point where they take more control over their own career. So they don't feel like they have to get in these kind of situations where if somebody takes a new job or gets on social media, it's perceived as a casus belly and an act of war, you know, on, on somebody else in the field, right? Like I, you nor anybody else, I think should really kind of like try to placate themselves just to make other people feel more secure. It's everybody's careers in their own hands and they need to do, what they need to do to make a difference and, and, and abide by that. Mm -hmm. There's a, a couple of threads I want to sort of pull out on, on there. Um, one is this, this sense of, um, I think we're, we as a profession, and I say that in coaching in general, um, are really addicted to this concept of working ourselves into the ground to somehow prove that we're worthy of what it is that we do. And, and then on the other side, we're, we're always espousing to our athletes how they have to recuperate, take days off, rest, you know, bring an intensity, but then find a happy medium to that. Um, what do you say about that? What, where do you lie on that now, you know, in your, in, in, with your astute wisdom of, of the years of practice? <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, you're talking to something that now is near and dear to my heart, especially because... I'm actually hosting an event in Atlanta in January that is all about this topic, you know, just career management, providing value, getting out of this hole. Um, I'll say it, you know, I'm not tongue in cheek. I'll say it purposefully. I agree with you. I think this martyrdom that we have in our field is absurd. 
the first book I was given when I joined the field was first in last out. Um, and the whole idea, now granted, this was about a fire department and it's a valuable book, right? Like, so this is nothing about the book, but the message in which it was given is like, you know, understand what it takes to be in this field. And, you know, I don't know that I agree. I, I agreed with it at the time. I mean, I'd get, we'd get in competitions as graduate assistants or interns who would get there earlier, who would stay there later. You know, there were times I worked for folks or with folks that like, literally they'd be, you know, messing around on an Excel spreadsheet instead of going home to their wife or girlfriend. And it's kind of like, at the time, you think that's the right thing to do. Now, I mean, I, I played that game because I didn't have any significant others at the time. I didn't have anything in my life other than didn't work. Um, but, you know, how does that, how does that prove your worth? You know, again, like if I coach eight groups today, like I'm a better coach than if I only coach four, you know, I asked my dentist the, a couple of years ago, I go, Hey, do you guys ever get in competitions of who pulled the most wisdom teeth? Um, <laughs> I, you know, I sincerely doubt I'd love to be able to have dinner or lunch with uh, Leonardo da Vinci or, or Michelangelo and say, Hey, did you get paint? Did you get paid? Or would you, would you say that the quality of your work was dependent on the number of brush strokes taken or the image that coalesced as a result of your observation and intense focus? you know, are they really going to sit there and say they had a clicker, right? Looking at every brush stroke, but like S and C, we do the same. And the argument for why we've been doing this has kind of been, it's an old one right now. It's kind of like, well, how do we prove our value? You know, like you could have a great strength staff and not necessarily affect wins and losses. You can do this. And I agree, but I think we're asking the wrong question. It's not, how can you prove your value? It's how can you provide more value? I think you have people that are so concerned with this idealistic or this typical idea of what it means to be a strength coach. Right? Just this guy who owns the domain of the weight room and discipline and all this that we forget that there's a business side of coaching as well. And we have to manage the perception in which others view us in, you know, go, go be a part of your athletic department, go to budget meetings, act like a professional, see how you can help people in other circumstances. You're, Strength coaches to me are managers. They're leaders. You know, they're not, they're not just disciplinarians. There's so many different things, but what is the image we convey? You know, I, I had the good fortune of being able to speak at Microsoft when the book came out. One of the guys there goes, so you're a strength coach, huh? And he kind of chuckled and he goes, not what I envisioned. And I was just, I was kind of taken aback and almost insulted at that because I'm really protective of our field. I think people misunderstand strength and conditioning, you know, even though sometimes it frustrates me our field frustrates me with how we behave and fight and get in these little picayune debates. But, you know, I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he goes, you know, I just kind of expected more of a meathead type thing. And I was just, you know, I'll never. And I remember one time meeting a, a, a higher up at the UFC and he had said the same thing to the tune of you have an interesting field. And I go, well, how do you mean? And he goes, I've been in business a long time, but nobody cuts the knees out from under one another, like strength coaches, you know? And then we wonder, why we're in these positions. And then we go to the only thing we know, Scott, which is what you said. Well, if I work harder than you, like if I'm a coal miner, you know, and I kind of embrace a coal miner attitude, then I'm more of a coach than you. I don't know that that's true. I, I, would, I would just really challenge people to, to ask them why they think that this kind of martyrdom where they're losing their family, many strength coaches lose their health. They become reliant on stimulants, exogenous means to kind of you know, elevate their work again, they lose their family. And that's not a dig at anybody, you know, 10 years from now, I, my wife and I could be separated. You know, I've had health issues. We've all, we all have our stuff, but it's one thing to aggrandize that. 
you know, and act like it's your commitment to the craft that's, that's doing that. I, I don't think that those things are mutually exclusive to you. Mm-hmm. No. And, uh, it, it's been, a, I would say a bit of a, um, thorn in my side for a long time, because I think there's this, there has to be, and that's what I search for. Um, a, and people like to use the word balance. I don't think there is such a thing as balance, but I think the happy medium and, and, a, and, a, and a clarity of, of, of who you are and what you're delivering um, so that you can deliver the best of yourself and the best of the work that you do. And I don't believe it comes with the, the volumetrics of doing stuff. I think it comes, I'm very much a qualitative person. I'm a qualitative person in the way that I coach and the way that I work with the athletes that I work with. And I believe that quality trumps quantity, that at the end of the day, you've got to do good quality work and your quality is what expresses and, and bring good quality to your relationships and the people that you're with. And I've actually one of my pet peeves of the industry is that we call it strength and conditioning. For me, I think it's performance. I think you've, you've got to understand the, the whole pathway of performance. You've got to be connected to all measures of that. I mean, you've written, you've written a tremendous book, Brett, to, you should be commended for doing it. And at the end of the day, it's really a questioning the, the, uh, the human side of what we do and bringing a scientific uh, connection to that. But it's, but it, to me, it's more than that. It's actually expressing to people that, you know, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be connected to who you are. You have to be uh, connected to the people that you're coaching. And that takes more than just the nuts and bolts and, and grinding out the hours every day. So. Well said. Yeah, no. And thank you. I mean, yeah, it's just, you know, to not acknowledge the human nature side of things is akin to a surgeon operating in the fog. You know, like what, what I don't understand, you know, coaching is a social endeavor, humans are social animals, you know? So I remember when people said, well, the art of coaching is the easy thing, or you're not telling anybody anything they don't know. I'd challenge that. You know, I would say that the art of coaching is not the easy part. I've seen intern after intern coach after coach, people that are very, very intelligent struggle to lead a session yet. They can regurgitate facts and figures through the back of their hand. They can write programs but they can't orchestrate them. You know, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And the book wasn't made to be medicine. You know, the book wasn't made to like say, Hey, I'm going to solve all your problems. The book was a starting point, you know, and, and the, the presentations that I do now or the online course at artofcoaching.com or all the things that will dive deeper and more deeply into these things. Um, but the book was a starting point to just remind people, Hey, this is a conversation that we need to be having we need to look deeper. Uh, um, you know, I don't think people are doing it's due diligence. I mean, and you know, you go to these conferences and again, it's all great. I always want to keep learning, but how many more presentations do we need to see on the clean and the snatch, you know, and how much more research do we need to read about, you know, strength enhancing performance? We know this. And I totally get that. That's like, that's to take nothing away from the researchers. I understand the nature of academia, right? It's to continually publish and challenge and what have you not arguing about that. I'm talking about the knowledge transfer. Where is the platform that helps coaches develop the social side? You know, and that's, that's really like what my aim is from this standpoint on, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. It won't be perfect, but it'll be honest and hopefully practical. So what did the, what did writing the book mean to you? Was it a cathartic thing for you? Uh, oh, would... Exorcism. Yeah. Without cathartic exorcism, no doubt. I, I, <laughs> I would go see a movie with my wife and I'd come out feeling awful 
And she'd be like, what's wrong? Did you not like it? I go, I just feel like a piece of crap because I should be writing. I feel like I should be. And then it was a struggle for me. I don't like writing, you know, like I don't like, I'm very, I'm a very kinetic person. I'd prefer, I prefer emoting and interacting with somebody. I like looking into another person's eyes and engaging. And, and so writing is to me, it's a stationary, you know, and I, and I get the value of it. I, I don't remember, forgive me if the quote's wrong, but I think it was Hemingway. Somebody said writing yourself is basically like sitting down and bleeding at a typewriter. And I get what they like, it is a draining thing for me. And, and some people say that, well, writing forces clarity and you're not wrong if you say that, but I think interacting does as well. I think the, the sharing of ideas, you know, the, the, the thinking, just the engagement, I think that that is just as much thought provoking and cleansing as anything else. And so writing is hard when I was done. Absolutely. I mean, but after a point, then people reach out and say, so when's your next one? And you're like, dude, that took me three years. During that time, I moved twice. I got married. I coached full time. So that book was written between 11 p.m. at night, excuse me, and 1 a.m. in the morning, almost exclusively. And, uh, you know, so, but yeah, that's how people are, right? When's your next one coming out? Uh, you know, when's the movie coming out? When are you going to retire? When are you going to die? You're like, dude. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> what's what's uh, your greatest strength do you think the ability to recognize my own weaknesses that's awesome i like that and what's what is your achilles heel as a person uh the, the fact that sometimes i care too much um about things and uh for me it's it's a it's an interesting form of perfectionism where again i'm always trying to prove myself wrong i'm always I, there's always this sub vocalization in my head uh, like saying that's not good enough. This has to be better. You can do better. Like I very much want to die empty and I don't mean drained. I don't mean exhausted. I mean, I want to die empty from the standpoint that I do not want a thought that could help somebody to rot or atrophy without getting out there in some way, shape or form. You know, I, I understand that I talk quickly. My brain moves even faster. You know, I understand. And that's almost probably the frustration of writing for me too. I feel like I'm up against the clock and I can't get things out fast enough through a written medium. And, and I know somebody could easily say an author could easily say, well, yeah, but then, you know, what's your, what's your barometer? Cause you could be putting so much out there that half of it is crap. Um, what's crap to one person might be very useful for another, you know, I, I think that there's, and, and it's not like I just throw everything out there, right? Like I'm discerning. I'll think like, will this provide value? Um, uh, you know, when I do these courses or I may venture on a podcast at some point through the continuous prodding of my friends, I'm not just going to turn on the mic one day and be like, Hey, listen to my thoughts. You know, I'm, I'm not, um, but yeah, I would say that I sometimes just can't let myself chill out. I've always got a, you know, we talked about music and, and you may laugh at this because of, you know, the generational thing, but you know, whether you like the music or not is irrelevant the guy's process, if you know anything about him, is 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 really unique. Yeah, I've always related heavily to Eminem. Like, you know, he he has a tortured process, you know, and nobody would on 60 minutes, you know, he talks about how he writes from the corner of the page down. And he oftentimes one song is comprised of notes from several different places, a napkin that he wrote lyrics down on a restaurant. 
something he did on his phone, something he did on a legal pad. I'm very much like that. No checklist, no, no productivity book, no nothing, no ritual is going to absolve me from that. And I finally own that that's how I work and that's okay. It works for some people. Um, so I think that too, like sometimes I try to improve myself in areas that are probably okay, best left imperfect. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think people forget that imperfections are what lead to breakthroughs, not, not this perfection. Oh yeah. I wake up at five and I answer all my emails and I write for an hour. Then I work out then like, and that's great that some people have that routine if that works for them. Mm-hmm. But if that's not what works for you, quit trying to force yourself into that, mm-hmm. you know, like, and I've owned that a little bit more over the years. Yeah, I read a great book recently written by a guy named Todd Rose called The End of Average. And it's really about individualism. And I think, you know, we've been sort of unfortunately driven into sort of this average area and sort of belief system, you know, give the, 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 the average kind of program, the average strategies. And I think what your book talks about and what I believe in is we, we have to individualize what we're doing for our clients and, and, and for ourselves, you know, you can, you can take things from people and see what may or may not work, but you, but they're your only solution set for you is the one you craft for yourself. Yeah, that's a really great point. And it's important for performance coaches to recognize because within our role, we often have like this double burden, right? Like our role, we, we carry the expectations of like, a fortune 500 company, right? Things are supposed to run smoothly. We're supposed to have everything organized, hopefully inputs equal outputs. So we carry the, the, the expectations of like a fortune 500 company, but all the limitations of an underdog. It's the worst of both worlds. We're expected to create miracles, but we don't have all the tools and the belief and, and the buy-in, you know, either from the administration or everybody else, you know? And so um, it, it, it's an interesting thing that people have to understand that you do have to approach things differently and take great value in that. And the best you can do is, is hope to pick some useful tips from different folks and, and continually experiment, you know, and, and that's something that I'll always do. I don't know how I won't drive my wife nuts over the years. And that's why I love talking to folks like you and, and Sue and Mike, because, you know, you've been through so many transitions in your personal and professional life. But also I, I can relate just because, you know, some of the things that people argue about now are just for the birds. You know, the things we argue about now just don't matter as much as we think we, they do, you know, but we're so self-important that it's like, no, no, no. Yeah, we definitely have to have a three to one ratio of, of pulling to pushing. Like, yeah, that's a good heuristic. But like, are we going to get an argument about this on Twitter? You know, and like I had somebody one time say, hey, buy-in is not a real term. And I'm like, mm. You know, it's used worldwide, man, by, by people in just about every field. Everybody knows that buy-in means trust, you know, and so I'm not really going to get into a debate with you about the fundamental underpinnings of the word buy-in. You know, it means trust, and, and if you ask people, they'll get that. But people just like to argue about things that, you know, I think they feel are important in the time, but it's a reflection of maybe something they're missing in themselves. Yeah, well, I think it's a it's a, a bit of a social an, an unfortunate side effect of social media and twenty four hour news is we've got to find something to talk about and bitch about and crap on people about because there's got to be we've got to fill space right. But I think and you know to to that for me one of the my goals with this podcast is to 
and it's just for me is to talk to good people about good things about what makes them tick and, and hopefully people take away things that are helpful to them and that they are better for it. And that's, that's what's important to me in doing this. So I think you're accomplishing that, you know, and you hit, you hit on a lot of key topics and the fact that you're aware of, you know, the fact that the emotions we display day to day are really part and parcel of our effective DNA. And those things are what coalesce and ultimately create the performance outcomes that we want. Because if we don't have an understanding of those things, who are we reaching? How are we engaging? And you, I think we can make a pretty convincing argument for even the most staunch contrarian that engagement is where learning and performance happens. If somebody's not engaged and I, I look at it, I just bought a smoker because I have too, somebody told me I had too many intense hobbies, right? It was either hiking or lifting or boxing. They're like, dude, like, you know, so I got a smoker and a smoker is interesting, right? Like you have to start the charcoal and that's like the beginning of engagement, right? Like we have this kind of hot ember, but it still needs oxygen. It still needs something that it, uh, it to, to create the flame. And that flame is what sustains everything. And to me, like the flame is the communication tactic that you use to continue to feed that engagement, the interactions that feed that engagement. And so, you know, commend you big time for, for touching on these things and not being scared to get personal. And you have probably the most calming, focused voice I've ever heard on any podcast. <laughs> like somehow as somebody on the other end of it, like helps me think more clearly. So that's a gift in and of itself for what it's worth. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. How do you rest? How, how do you, how do you get rest? Yeah. Um, and again, you all people that will scoff at this and a younger me as well, because I used to fall into that productivity overload where like I couldn't take walks without listening to an audiobook or podcast. And I still do these things, right? Like these are still things I very much struggle with, but I had, I had points in my life where every moment I had to be learning, 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 and I never shut off. Um, now, you know, I'm adamant that one hour a night, my wife and I will watch a show you know, we'll watch a show or we'll go to the movies on a weekend and people can say whatever they want. You know, I read a lot. I love to read. And, but we live in an era of pretty good TV too. Not all TV is trash. Sure. If you're sitting there watching whatever show on Bravo, you know what I mean? Like that may not be, but like, you know, I watched something, a PBS thing on Theodore Roosevelt that is phenomenal and gives me great insight into a lot of things that I fail at as a leader. Um, you know, we watch shows on HBO and Showtime that just the creed, I think people forget that shows, even television, like they're a manifestation of writing, right? Like very talented writers are hired to produce this body of work. And so there, there are some books that are absolutely horrible just because they're written doesn't mean that that's a great medium for learning, right? Just like, just because something's viewed doesn't mean that it's erosive or corrosive, you know? And so we'll watch a show, um, speaking from a, a music standpoint, brief segue, Probably the best, uh, I mean, this is probably one of the best forms of continual education I've gotten in the past four years came from a show on HBO called The Defiant Ones. That was all about Jimmy Iovine, head of Interscope Records, um, and who found, you know, really found and nurtured Bruce Springsteen along in his career, helped find NW, I mean, Dr. Dre after he was done with NWA, um, somebody that had worked with the Beatles, somebody that worked with Gwen Stefani it was a four part series about, you know, basically what they did, their, their beginnings in the music industry, 
how they really created cultural shifts in music and what they gave as a result of that and what they learned. I think that was better than at least three conferences I've been to this year, you know, but so many coaches will never watch that because they think TV is garbage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, you just got to be a discerning viewer, but we'll watch a show. I'll take the dogs for a walk. Um, Dogs. I'm a huge dog person. And, uh, I've kind of found, you know, I've rediscovered my enjoyment of long walks. There's no purpose. There's no agenda. If I had my way, I'd just kind of get lost for an hour. And that slow, steady, rhythmic pace just puts me into a meditative kind of state. And and my best thinking is often done at that time. Cool. You're, you're married. I didn't ask you at the beginning. You're married, but you don't have you don't have children, or do you do you have? Children? No, in the in the process of trying that, we have some medical things we're up against, but it'll happen soon enough. I'm I'm pretty convinced that if I had a kid right now, I'd be a terrible father. Um, <laughs> because I mean, I travel 65 to 80 times a year. Um, you know, and then when I'm not traveling, I'm coaching or you know doing other stuff. And so you know, I definitely want to be as engaged of a father as I can be. So that time will come. My wife is an absolute rock star as well. She holds down two to three separate jobs because she wants to. She, you know, she doesn't have to. She wants to. And um, she, she's in a phase right now where I very much see her coming into her own and, and finding what she's passionate about and how she can help people. So we have this mutual understanding that neither of us are even close to where we want to be yet as people, let alone professionals. And it's crime time still. That's awesome. Well, I didn't have mine until I was 45. So same sort of thing. I uh, for my wife because she has <laughs> proverbial clock. And, she, <laughs> and how old is your, is it son, daughter right now? My, my daughter's 10 now. So yeah, That's awesome. it's, a, it, it's, it's a rewarding thing, but you definitely should uh, be ready for it when you want to. A lot of people say you, you're never ready, but I think to your point, I think, you know, inside of yourself, when you think you can bring the best of yourself to the situation. So, and she wants more, like right away. <laughs> if I had my way, I just, and I'm like, you sure? Cause she comes from a big family. And I'm like, let's have one first. And then you can see if you still want four, but you know, more knowing what you want. And is she your yin to your yang or are you guys very similar? Uh, Sounds like you're similar if she's working three jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say it depends. You know, in certain things, I think in our zest kind of for life, we're very similar. I would say I'm a bit more anxious than she is. She's she's very laid back, devil may care, kind of flower child-esque in terms of like she can just sit and be. I sit and I feel like I need to be doing something or I feel like if I'm not doing something. And this is worth sharing with your listeners because we talked about the coaching thing as I transition to a role where, you know, I coach two thirds of the year and then I speak and do other things another third of the year, I had a tremendously hard time dealing with that. I felt like if I wasn't coaching daily, like I used to, that I would suck at it, that I'd be, you know, that I'd lose it. And of course that stuff doesn't happen. You know what I mean? Like once you get right back into the rhythm of it, like all that stuff is, is locked in. But I, I always almost feel like I have to be doing something at all times or I'm getting worse you know, and she's the one that very much reminds me like, yeah, I don't think you're going to forget how to lead a dynamic warm up. You know, I, I think that you're going to be just fine teaching an acceleration session. Like you're not going to forget those things. Um, but she knows that I want to make a positive impact in the world and far more than just strength and conditioning. And I don't, you know, I, I, I'm sure I, I just send so much tension her way. And she has this magnificent gift of like, it doesn't affect her. You know, it doesn't affect her at all. She's calm, cool, collected. 
And sometimes on the other side, I, she needs a little my urgency and she'd admit that. I think she's seeing that as she gets older, like life will take advantage of you. People will take advantage of you. You know, you have to hope for the best, but be prepared for everything. Um, so yeah, we're, I would say it's 50, 50, 50% of the things we're very similar on, um, other things we may drive each other nuts on, but it works because we have the same ultimate goal of wanting to, to leave an impact that's hard to follow. Are you a romantic? How did you ask her to marry you? Uh, I was out teaching in Sydney, Australia, and I organized it so that I could uh, propose to her on top of the Sydney Harbor Bridge. So, yeah, we, I proposed to her at sunset on the Sydney Harbor Bridge. If she said no, I was planning on throwing her off. <laughs> uh, and then I organized it so that when we went back to the hotel, you know, they did the chocolates and roses thing. And, you know, I'm probably more of a romantic than she is simply because I've had not failed marriages or, but I've had failed relationships before where my work got in the way and I probably didn't behave the way I wished I would have. Um, and even though I'm a hundred percent with the right partner now, I wanted to be a better partner. Um, I would say in the past I'd been so unilaterally focused that there was just this detachment. I'd always let that person know I loved them and cared for them. But like, I also am just very independent, you know, and with her, I've really tried to curb that, and it's the opposite problem. Now I'm trying to get her to slow down periodically and be like, and it was great. We went over to our neighbors the other night and they're retired. They're in their mid, mid to late sixties. And the woman looked at her and said, you need to make sure that you make time for date night. And I had said something to Liz like that earlier. My wife's name's Liz and she's very economical. She's like, we don't need to waste money going out to eat. We don't need to waste money doing this. We don't, you know, we're still trying to build a future. And I said, I don't look at that as wasting money. I look at that as an investment in our relationship. You know, like I'll happily foot the bill for this or that, even if it means less money going into my IRA or 401k, which is all self-distributed because I'm self-employed. Um, you know, I don't, I, I don't have any lucrative. I'd love to tell you I'm a millionaire because of the book. That's not how that stuff works at all. The book was self-published, which takes a lot of money. Um, it's, it's not advertised by anybody. It's completely spread through word of mouth. Um, so anyway, I'm like, but I'd happily put the bill for those things if it means an investment in us. So yeah, we, we got engaged on the Sydney Harbor Bridge and married on top of uh, a volcano. So it was a little bit interesting. Wow. Good for you. I like that. That's How about cool. you? How long have you been married? I have now been married for almost 13 years, uh, but I was married twice before that. It's my third marriage. So yeah. I've made my share of mistakes over the years, <laughs> but finally found the one. Now, to be honest with you, like I, I told my wife, I go, do you think we're going to learn that same lesson? Because I mean, you know, like that's not, my mom always felt like it was a failure when she got divorced. I go, mom, that's not a failure. Like that's life. You know what I mean? Like marriage. And we could get into a whole separate conversation about marriage, right? Like it, it, if it's a realistic construct and it's very tough, it's a partnership and so, you know, I often, and I've been very open with my wife. I'm like, that, that's an interesting thing to explore. Like, what are we going to learn about ourselves through the course of this? And how can we make it so that, you know, we extract those messages, but yeah. it's fascinating. It's scary too, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm actually not a big fan of the word failure. I, my viewpoint is you fail when you, when you don't learn from something yeah. that doesn't work out for you. And I would say I failed in my, um, in my first marriage because I made the sec same mistakes the second time, but I didn't fail the second time. I, I learned from it. So yeah, that's the key. What, yeah. um, my last big, uh, big question for you, what scares you in life still? 
um, not living up to my own expectations for myself. And that always has been, I mean, aside from losing family, friends, you know, aside from becoming like a handicap because I'm very active and I love being active. So aside from those things, um, being put in the ground without feeling like I lived as close to my full potential as I can. I know we'll never optimize ourselves, but I mean, I literally pray every night that, you know, I can make the most of whatever it was that I was giving, you know, and it really does scare me. It frightens me. And it frightens me too, because I know to achieve that, which will never be achieved, you've got to pull back at times. So like, you know, I, I'm not going to fall into the illusion that to live up to my expectation of myself, I've got to constantly be working. Cause that's like, that's the, that's the mirage, right? Like you have to have incubation periods. You have to experience life. Um, but because again, just of my kind of constant awareness of, of death and just the urgency and, and the limited time to me, time's the ultimate currency. That's why everything I do is, you know, I try to create some kind of system for to a degree, or I don't really like the word system. I'll, I'll say roadmap, roadmap, because there's always contingencies and other roads we can take. Um, but yeah, being put into the ground feeling like I didn't provide value to somebody or that I didn't live up to my own expectations. How about yours? What scares me? Um, what scares me is, you know, not understanding myself and letting not understanding myself stop me from being who I can be. That scares me. And I'm yeah. constantly trying to figure it out. So trying to, trying to learn about myself all the time and understand myself better, which is, which is a double-edged sword. It consumes you, but at the same time, it's, I think what we're put on this earth to do is to Without question. learn about ourselves. I would say to you as a piece of, um, a piece of advice about the kid thing that, um, kids having kids makes you um really look at what you stand for and what you do and so if i do have a regret it's uh having mine a little bit later than i should have and so then i was kind of stuck to just having one because i didn't feel it would be the best course of action to have a 20 year old in my house when i was 70 so so understand that you may not feel completely uh, prepared to take take it on, but at the same time, it is a very, very powerful grounding point for the things that really are truthfully valuable in your life. So yeah, all good points for sure. Um, last piece: what what do you when you do perish from this earth, which I hope is not for a long time? What do you hope people say about you? Um, that even though I was imperfect, that I brought it you know, and, and things that I did that they understood that there was a genuine and authentic effort in everything that I truly applied myself to, you know, and I think in a world right now where people go through a lot of things passively, I would like people to know that or feel like I cared. And that was very evident. And that even though this world will definitely go on without all of us, especially me, um, I hope I leave one big hell of a hole, you know, and uh, that's what I'd like. Point you that you got married in a vol volcano then. Without <laughs> <laughs> yep, question. It's been awesome to spend an hour with you, Brad. Uh, thanks for taking the time. It's nice to meet you, and hopefully we're paths cross again uh, face to face. So. Yeah, likewise, and sorry for being a little late. My apologies. Thanks for having me. No worries. Take care. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. 
Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at Kingo Payne and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>